welcome to a new episode of Technoculture. I'm your host, Federica Bressan, and today my guest is Harry Ferweyen, Executive Director of the Europeana Foundation. Welcome, Harry. Hi, Federica. I'm very happy to have an episode of Technoculture on Europeana because this is a very important and large-scale project that many people are familiar with. Many of us have heard Europeana mentioned in one context or the other, but it's not obvious that everybody would know what it is exactly and, most importantly, what it can do, what it does for different types of communities in Europe but also across the world. I just described it as a digital platform, which is a rather abstract and generic description, a digital platform for cultural heritage. It's also a meta-aggregator and display space for digitized works. It's an assembly of collections, and these are all expressions that I'm picking from various descriptions of Europeana. So, if you don't mind, I would like to begin by asking you what Europeana is. Yeah, that's a very good uh, starting point. Um, so in order to tell you what it is, let me tell you what, it, what we do. The core of what we do is we help museums, libraries, archives across Europe to make their digital content available on the web. It's actually as simple as that. Um, but in order to make that happen, we do a large number of different activities. So uh, we develop, uh, for example, metadata models, we help with uh, intellectual property issues, we do some advocacy work to make sure that uh, both in Brussels and in the museums and libraries, uh, openness as a concept uh, is something that people start to understand. But we also develop new technologies, um, for example, recently IIIF uh, as in uh, a way to uh, interrogate images on the web uh, be, starts to become a standard. That's where we jump in and then we hope to roll that out across the museums. I introduced you as Executive Director of Europeana Foundation. What is the difference or what is the relationship between Europeana Foundation and Europeana as the thing we think of when we think of Europeana? So the digital platform, the collection of services. So Europeana Foundation is an organization uh, based in The Hague, Den Haag, in uh, the Netherlands. And there's about 50-some people walking around here, uh, from developers, Java developers, to couple of marketeers to uh, policy design specialists, uh, a bit of everything. 25 nationalities, by the way, which is quite interesting. So uh, what we do is we operate what is called to be the Europeana service or the platform. And that has a very specific remit that, has, uh, that comes from the European Commission. So the European Commission funds the core service and we execute that. But we don't do that alone. We do that uh, in a consortium with currently 27 partners. Um, some of those partners are, for example, um, aggregators, so specialists in the domain of video, like EU Screen, or Carrara, who understand the archaeological field. And they are the ones who then work with the individual institutions, of which we have currently close to 4,000 who participate. We've got some technological partners. Uh, so that is really on the executing level, uh, the relationship between European Foundation, the partners, and the service that we develop for the European Commission, for the European Union. And then besides that, to make it even more interesting, we have a network of professionals, um, cultural innovators uh, from the... Uh, from the field, they can be in education, they can be creatives, they can be professionals in the library domain, and about 2,000 of them. And they are um, uh, hosted by what's the European Network Association. So I'm hoping that I didn't confuse you. Um, is that clear to you now, or do you have more questions on that? That's very clear, and I have more questions for you. You just said that one of the main objectives of Europeana is to help archives and cultural institutions enhance the presence of their collections online. I would assume that most of these institutions already have their own website, where they probably display some of their 
uh, holdings online. So what is special about Europeana? Besides bringing them all in one place, is there an added value like the content, the metadata? Are there specific sections for music, for history of art? What is the driving force behind the idea of bringing all these collections together in one place? Excellent question. Um, well, I think for starters, not all institutions have their own websites. Um, of course, the Louvre and the Rijksmuseum and the National Library of Austria, they all have their own websites. They're pretty well organized. But, uh, you know, smaller archives in the Netherlands or Bulgaria, uh, they may very well not have websites. So that's, that's I think, something you, you should understand. Now, secondly, uh, you can put stuff on the web. Uh, that's not difficult, right? Even with your iPhone, you can take a picture of uh, a painting and put it on a website. But what we believe in is that the more we standardize the way all these institutions make the data available on the web, the better they can interact with each other, the better uh, interfaces can be built on top of them. In other words, the higher the impact for the European citizen. So to give you a concrete example, um, if I'm interested in, let's say, the painter Van Gogh, um, I can interrogate the website of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, right? Uh, you may have been there even. But that doesn't mean that you also have access to the letters he wrote to his brother, which are an incredible source of information about who he was, you know, how he thought about things, etc. And even not all the paintings that uh, Van Gogh painted, of course, are in the Van Gogh Museum. They're scattered all over Europe and actually beyond Europe. So what we hope to do is that by standardizing how the metadata is constructed, uh, the licenses that are applied to it, um, that other websites like Europeana can bring all the, that material in, together in, relevant, in a relevant space. So that's why it's so important to have someone like Europeana. Um, maybe important to make a little distinction. So on the one hand, I'd be very happy if all the material is just available under open standards, uh, openly on the web anywhere. So that you can find it on Wikipedia, you can also find it uh, in uh, websites like Daily Art or whatever. But of course, Europeana also has the remit of bringing all the Europeanness together in one website. So that's why I think it's important to have a face uh, as Europeans towards each other, towards ourselves, and maybe towards the rest of the world. This is who we are. So that's why I think it's important to uh, the work that we're doing. I fully empathize with this concept. And having agreed on what you just said... I don't think that Europeana wants to be a European-only initiative. So can you talk a little bit about how Europeana opens itself up to the rest of the world? Um, so I think it really comes down to some fundamental principles. Um, so Europeana was conceived of about 10 years ago, uh, actually literally 10 years ago on the 20th of November. Um, and it came about uh, as a desire to um, not be completely delivered to tech monopolists uh, like Google. So if you remember at the time, there was in around 2005, 2006, uh, Google came about with a, a pretty interesting proposition uh, at the time. It said, you know, we'll come and we'll digitize all your main libraries, Oxford, um, Cambridge, uh, Bibliothèque Nationale de France, a couple of museums, and we'll scan all of that. Uh, we'll feed it to our uh, search engine, and you all get a free copy. Pretty good deal, right? Um, mm. So it did sound fairly attractive until the point where we started realizing as Europeans that, well, um, and I've got nothing against private enterprise, really, uh, but this is our cultural heritage. This is ours. This is fundamentally of the people and for the people. This is who we are. So it's a bit risky to uh, say, well, all of that, we're okay with taking a cheap ticket here and letting a private company uh, do all that. But what if, uh, for example, Google at a certain point would say, well, you know, the French material really isn't uh, giving us enough clicks. Uh, let's, let's sort of skip that or the Bulgarian or whatever. So you kind of think, imagine what that would mean for the interpretation of our cultural heritage in the future, right? 
So that was the fundament of the thinking behind Europeana. We should be able to do this in, as Europeans uh, in, in a different way. And a different way is very much based on the ideas of inclusiveness. Anyone should be able to participate, not only um, the, big, uh, the big hits, and the Mona Lisa's, etc., but equally the smaller museums and the smaller artworks. And secondly, we want to build this on open standards. Uh, so with us, we really try very, very hard to all the way from the business model to the technological stacks to the applications that we're building to the data itself to build that on open principles so we've got for example a, a licensing framework for the artworks themselves and, uh, and the books uh, where we've worked together with creative commons uh, to develop a set of licensing statements that any library museum or archive can use to put their content on the web and of course, we propagate that the more open you make your material available, the more interesting it will be for others to do something with. And, and that is really the driving principle. Sometimes cultural content is protected by copyright, so it cannot just be delivered online like that. Yep. How does Europeana deal with this? Is there protected content and what's the ratio between the content and the metadata? Okay, just to be precise... Um, what we have in Europeana is metadata. So we have information about artworks or books. That's essentially we're a big catalog, except that what we try to do is to represent the artwork, which will be hosted on a server somewhere else, right, where the original resides, in as good a way possible on the Europeana website. So all the metadata with us is uh, licensed under the license CC0, which is essentially a, a public domain statement. The content itself um, can follow any of 14 licenses that we make available, which includes under copyright, but it can also include things like uh, it is in copyright, but we as the institutions making it available under certain reusable uh, formats. Like for example, you can share it, but you need to say where it comes from. Or it can be used only for educational purposes, but not for commercial purposes. Let me ask you a practical example. Say I want to know more about the Mona Lisa. I can Google it, and that's probably what most people would do today. I also know where the Mona Lisa is. It's at the Louvre in Paris, so I can go to their website. And I can, you know, use several kinds of resources. So why Europeana? Why would I want to make a search within Europeana? Is there always at least as much information as on the websites of the institutions that hold the specific artwork? Can there be less sometimes for some reason? Or can there be more? Because information gets enriched by merging it with information coming from the other institutions across Europe that are all collected in Europeana. Um, okay, so there, there are two ways into your question here. Uh, the first one is, you're mentioning the Mona Lisa, which is a, a famous artwork, perhaps even the most famous. Um, and you probably will know that it is in the Louvre. So in that case, um, you would only, I think, go to Europeana because you want to know, okay, so what else is there about the Mona Lisa that I didn't know? And maybe Europeana has some other interesting information, like uh, books about uh, when it was abducted from the Louvre or uh, those type of things. But I think most people will come to Europeana because we're a long tail organization. So you don't know exactly what you're looking for, but you might be looking for, say, uh, a theme like uh, Art Nouveau, or like I said, Van Gogh, or... I'm looking for circus posters that I can reuse um, as a creative. So those are the types of things that I hope people will come to Europeana for. Um, you ask, you know, can I always find uh, the best possible resolution at Europeana? I'm afraid I have to say no. Um, in some cases, uh, the best resolution you will be able to find in, uh, at the institution itself. But what you should be able to find in Europeana is a good enough resolution for you to at least do something with, if the license allows it. Or there will be a link to the original place, and then you can find the original. Good example is the Rijksmuseum. Are you familiar with uh, with their works? 
the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the Rijksmuseum is, is a, in this world, a very famous example of a, an institution who deliberately makes all their artworks available under the highest possible resolutions for anyone to do whatever they want with. If you want to put it on uh, toilet paper, the, the milkmaid, for example, they encourage you to do it. So what you have on Europeana will be a very good resolution, but if you click through and go to the Rijksmuseum, you'll find a place where you can find the original TIFFs, which are sometimes, uh, you know, gigabytes big. So you can actually put it on, uh, on wallpaper. Okay, I find that a very good thing. Yeah, so do I. You know, I've been interacting with several types of archives for at least the past 10 years. And there is a school of thought that doesn't seem to me to be a winner in the long term. But there is a school of thought that some archives adopt um, or apply. That is, I do not share my material because it loses value. If I deliver it to you already, then you will not come to me. So I should keep it uh, local. So you will come to me. The approach that the Rijksmuseum has adopted must prove successful because, number one, they wouldn't be doing it otherwise. And number two, it seems to embody some democratic values that Europe should be proud of, Europe should be promoting, open up. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what, what I would also say is uh, in, in most of these institutions, libraries, museums or archives, I mean, they have a public mission, right? And um, the more their works uh, infiltrate in science, in education, in creativity, will help Europe and essentially help themselves. However, uh, and I think that is sometimes the most critical point, um, these museums, libraries and archives are also under tremendous pressure financially. Uh, and, I, and I do really see that. So on the one hand, they need to show their relevance to society, which I think, you know, I, I can't see a reason why openness would not <laughs> make them more relevant. But it's sometimes countered by, uh, okay, um, I actually make a couple of hundred thousand euros at the moment uh, selling licenses. So, you know, will people actually come to my museum? There's an embedded fear in there that they lose uh, customers, if you want. What's brilliant about the Rijksmuseum case is that they said, well, actually, it works for us on both sides, both on the business side. Uh, we've made ourselves a lot more relevant because... The amount of people coming to them now, uh, and, and basically their branding, you know, how much their branding is now out there, how many mugs are being made, t-shirts, uh, all kinds of things, basically saying, come to the Rijksmuseum and see the, see, see the original, it's tremendous, right? I wonder if the aura effect can only be true for the Mona Lisa. I actually don't think it can, but what I wonder is what it takes for the other institutions, for all the institutions, to learn the lesson. The Mona Lisa is the one successful example of a work of art that everybody has seen one way or the other in a book online, and yet people travel to Paris to see the Mona Lisa in person. I guess it's undeniable that there is something special about standing in front of a masterpiece. It's your experience of being there. It's actually very funny that, you know, some people will go to the Louvre just to see the Mona Lisa. It's like, check, I've done that. And it's very funny, a shame, that you neglect many other works exhibited there because you want to see the Mona Lisa. Now, that also depends on your education, taste, your liking, the time you have at your disposal. But you know that happens. And that's very telling, probably, about human nature in a way. But for institutions, that should just let them know that the more people are exposed to... Um, items in their collections, the more somebody will want to know more about that specific one because it attracted their attention. It's about having your own experience of the work. Well, actually, I, th I, my, I think it would go even further than that. I mean, you should be happy if 
even if people don't come to your museum, that people actually use the works that you are, I mean, you're a custodian for something that doesn't really belong to you in the first place because it's cultural heritage that belongs to us all. I think uh, many, many directors I speak to actually believe that and it's true. Um, on the other hand, I do think that uh, there are smart ways to use it also as marketing or branding material to let people into your context that you still have as a museum or a library and say, come visit that fantastic work, but inside the premises of my museum or my library or my archive, and I'll tell you a lot more about it and your experience will be enhanced by that. But... I mean, I think we're now entering a, a really interesting new space. You know, there's the, the word on the street at the moment in Brussels, I'm sure you're aware of that, is uh, digital transformation, which I find a very fascinating term. Um, so the aim of Europe is to help Europeans go through that so-called digital transformation. But I think uh, you can interpret that in many ways. So you can think, well, digital transformation means that we're just going to use more digital stuff, right? More technology, more things like Skype, uh, you know, there will be scanners everywhere, uh, etc. I think we have a, a strong responsibility, and in particularly in culture, to help that transformation take shape, to give it character, to give it flavor. You know, what do we want to transform into as a society at the end of the day? And what role can culture play there? And I think that's where museum libraries and archives have a tremendous responsibility and a huge opportunity. So I don't want to personally live in a world uh, 20 years from now where, uh, you know, all my data is things that tell things about me, which are inherently from me. Uh, you know, for my for, for my personhood, uh, only interrogated by big companies like Facebook, and I would, would certainly also not want that to happen to the you know all the artworks and all the uh, the culture that we've produced here in Europe. So those are the big questions that I think we're we're facing at the moment in that context. Besides the Orwellian twist of what you just said. I think that that's precisely the culture in technoculture. Yeah. I think that for how fascinating it is to see how far we've come and how far we can go with the development of technology that for the most part makes our lives easier, technology should never be where our look ends. It's not the horizon. It's always a means, but it's our existential questions that bugs us we need to find a reason to get out of bed in the morning and we all suffer because of love and there is death and there's meaning so these questions will never leave us no matter what technology we come up with and i think that culture is that place where you don't find the answers but you can find the best pointers to finding your own answers Cultural heritage, memory, history, this is knowledge and artifacts, you know, the books and the objects that people before us have left for us, produced not always for us, but they survived to us. And these are people just like we are, so they were concerned with the same fundamental questions in a different historical context. And this is what technoculture is about, but it's hard to ask the question directly. It's very hard to ask, how does having a smartphone or how is it living in this techno-driven society today um, impacting how I ask my fundamental questions? So technoculture kind of talks around this point in hope that it will shed some light on the core issue. There is a very funny anecdote that I'm going to give. It's funny and a silly anecdote, but it made me think. Um, I was in Paris recently and I was visiting the Musée d'Orsay and there was a temporary exhibition on Van Gogh. First of all, I thought, how long have I been missing from museums? Because I do not remember everybody walking around with their smartphones. For me, the museum, I must be so old school, is still a place of silent contemplation it's you and the artworks, you know, it's, I mean, a mystical experience or something like that. 
And sure enough, in front of the starry night, there was a small crowd taking pictures of the painting and moving on. So I stopped there and actually observed the crowd for a while. At some point, there was a young couple that turned their backs to the painting to take a selfie with the painting on the background. And I wanted to call security. I was scandalized. I thought, these people don't know how museums work. Really? Okay, let me challenge that, because I think that that's fascinating. Did they first look at the Starry Nights before they took the picture? Look, honestly, they just turned around for a moment to make sure that the painting was correctly in the picture. And that, of course, is a bit sad. If you, if that's your only way of interacting with, with fantastic artwork like that, is that it's then it becomes a narcissistic exercise, right? It's look at me where I am now. It's like taking a, a, a selfie with Beyonce, right? But on the other hand, I think I, I always get very pissed off when I'm at a museum and uh, they don't allow me to take an image, a picture of an artwork, and it's still sometimes the case, right? Because we're living in an age of cultural participation. I mean, I, it helps me to express myself if I can say, look, I'm now in this museum and I've seen this fantastic detail in, in this statue. And I want to be able to send that to my friends on WhatsApp or whatever. If I can't do that, then it's, you know, we're still in a very old paradigm where art is being used as a, a podium for, you know, half gods to tell us you know, what the world looks like. It doesn't help me to understand or express what, what it can do to me. I fully agree on taking a picture of a detail if you want to share it with your friends, if that's safe for the work in terms of using the flesh and those things. I still think that the selfie is a, is a different thing, but let's move on and let's keep talking about how people engage with content. I read from the strategic plan of Europeana that there are four keywords for key actions. Aggregate, facilitate, distribute, and engage. I think that we've covered aggregation. How is content promoted, for example, how it is distributed and how is access to it facilitated and what strategies are put in place so that people engage with it? Um, first of all, I think you're looking at uh, the strategic plan, an old strategic plan that goes until 2011 or 15, maybe. Indeed, indeed. This is a plan from 2011 to 2015, but I also read that it was renewed for the period 2015-2020. So is this outdated? It, well, it, it is as a, the way we frame things, it's outdated. But, you know, the words facilitation and engagement, we can still talk about that. That's not a problem. What's the difference between facilitate and engage? Facilitate to me means that we enable other people to do something with the material. So, for example, because through the work of my teams here at Europeana Foundation, uh, the content which you will find in Europeana tells you exactly, okay, this is something I can reuse or not. It is, you know, certain metadata quality uh, levels. It's big enough for me to put on my screen. That enables something, someone to do something with it, which is a facilitation process. Um, when it's about engage, it's when I bring people uh, together actively uh, in an engagement situation. So I'll give you an example of uh, a project we, we're, we're currently in, which I'm really fascinated by. It's called Transcribathon as a concept. So what it is, we've got 200,000 letters and diaries and postcards uh, from the First World War uh, from 26 countries. Yeah, so soldiers from the front writing letters back to uh, their loved ones, uh, letters sent back, and then from the French side, the German side, etc. The problem is that that material is, of course, handwritten, just scanned, but you can't actually OCR it. You can't make it machine readable by itself with current technology. Yeah? Our engagement activity here is that we invite people uh, to come to a library on, let's say, you know, a Saturday. Uh, it could be school children, school classes, uh, older people, etc. And we invite them to sit behind a desk uh, and literally transcribe a letter from what it currently is. And on the right-hand screen, you'll see an open field where you can type it in. 
Now, the engagement here is that I was really, really fascinated by this. You, you see 16, 17-year-olds, and I have a son of that age myself, who I always uh, think have you know, a very limited attention spans for these type of things, spending hours, literally hours, uh, deciphering a letter, um, and through that process, empathizing with uh, you know, what these people went through at the time. Um, so they're doing something helpful for me, but at the, at the, the real big effect is that they are empathizing and getting involved in, in their own histories. You know, these are, of course, people who are, you know, so, sometimes these letters were written by people of their own age, right? 16, 17 year olds. So that is when I actively uh, create um, formats where people, real people on the street, you and me, can engage with his material in interesting ways. There's a little game aspect to it too, but I won't go into detail. In the beginning of this interview, I have defined Europeana as the European digital platform for cultural heritage. Cultural heritage relates to concepts like memory and identity, so it is something that needs to be defined. Whose memory is it? I want to connect this with the issue of immigration, which is not a new thing. It's just very actual now in the cultural and political discourse. But sure enough, our cultural heritage, or the existing cultural heritage in Europe, will be embraced by the newcomers, and they will also bring parts of their culture that most likely will become part of the European cultural heritage. I know that Europeana has an ongoing initiative about stories of immigration, an initiative that involves 10 museums across Europe. Can you tell us more about this initiative? So the, the concept itself is pretty similar to what I just told you about uh, with um, the Transcribathon example. So we, at its simplest, we invite people again on that Saturday morning come to a place, a museum, a library, an archive, and bring an object that reminds them of their own migration history. So it could be a diary, it could be uh, you know, a crumbled pack of cigarettes uh, that their grandfather still had on them when they uh, fled Hungary in 1956, uh, when they went to the West. It can be all these type of things. And then we digitize that and we collect their story. Now, you might wonder why would Europeana, a platform for cultural heritage, be engaged in a topic which is so political as migration, right? Um, so here, I mean, and I really want to make this point, we're not political in that sense. Uh, it's not that I'm advocating uh, migration is good uh, or bad or whatever of that kind. I mean, that is a political debate that I don't think Europeana has a role in. What I do think we have a role in, in you know, is to be to stay relevant to political discourses. And what this project aims to do is to say, look, you, we feel that pe because people don't know their own histories enough, there's a sense that migration is something that is only happening now, right? We are the original inhabitants of this uh, of this continent, and there are people coming now from northern Africa on boats trying to enter our, our space. And what this project aims to do is to say, look, if you think about it, 99% uh, of the people uh, here in Europe who consider themselves to be originals, quote unquote, uh, have a migration background also somehow. And we're interrogating that. From a very personal perspective, uh, when I thought about it, uh, so I'm Dutch, as you know, so I've always lived here and uh, that's really my background. But um, if you, if you would look at a picture of me, you'd think, hmm, he doesn't look maybe as archetypical Dutch as, as I might think he should be. And that's because I have some French blood in there uh, from the 17th century. And there's probably some Spanish blood in there as well. And a more recent history, uh, on both sides of my family, um, have lived in uh, Indonesia, which was a former Dutch colony. Uh, so there are stories about that and the type of food that, that have filtered into my being and my consciousness. So that's the type of thinking that we're trying to stimulate with this project. Europeana celebrates its first 10th anniversary this year, precisely on November the 20th. 
And I was going to ask you about the objectives of Europeana and whether they have been achieved during this uh, first 10 years of activity. But I understand from what you've been saying that the purpose of Europeana is more that of serving cultural heritage, of uh, being an aggregator and facilitator. So that sounds to me like something that is an ongoing task, something you just keep doing. So I'm going to ask you instead, with respect to the goals that you set for yourself, have you been able to monitor and measure your success? And have you maybe even raised the bar in the light of the achievements you've accumulated during these 10 years? And in other words, how has Europeana changed during these 10 years? Yeah, that's a great question for a 10-year anniversary. Um, well, I think we, we certainly made, uh, I think, progression in our thinking about what Europeana is, can be, and should be. Uh, we started out really as a a portal. I think I think in the even in the frame of we should be an alternative public Google, so a place you know where content flows in and can be seen. And over the years, we've we've developed a character around it that is much broader. So uh, we really believe that's our mission statement that we can. Ch- we can transform the world with culture. So to me, the whole, you know, helping institutions get their data standardized form on the web and into Europeana is an instrument to something much bigger. Now, your question was, you know, have you been able to measure some success there? Um, I think we, to a certain extent, we did. Um, so not only do we want to make uh, beautiful pictures available on the website, but uh, we've made our, our own lives a lot harder by saying, well, we also want that to have to happen under standardized and open licenses. So that's a much harder job than to just just get pretty pictures on a website. And for that, I have metrics. I can tell you that uh, over fifty percent of the material in Europeana is uh, openly openly licensed, which I think is a, is a nice feat in itself. That's still an output measure. Uh, what we're now interested in is really measuring beyond that. What longer-term effects do we have on society uh, in specific areas? On Did we change people's perspectives on, on migration, for example? Uh, did we change people's uh, pupils' behavior in how they uh, act and think about Europe? Uh, which are things that are, of course, much harder to measure, but we're developing methodologies now to start doing that. And I think that's really where our future lies, is to be able to do that better and in a more precise way so that it's really comprehensible for because you know for the investors in Europeana, which is the EU, but in, in essence, it's also you and me as taxpayers, right? We need, to, we need to understand why this is a valuable investment. So that's what I'm going to focus on in the next couple of years is to you know, make that much more tangible to people, why it's good to do it, not only do it, but to do it the way that we propose to do it. Just shortly, who supports Europeana? How does it live? Who pays the electricity bill for lights in your office? Um, light bills in the offices? Is it taxpayers' money, you and me, like you said before? I think here, because you live in both on the island and Netherlands, it's me and not you, because we're hosted kindly by the Royal Library in the Netherlands, who gives a very good deal for the, uh, you know, the the office space. But uh, 90% of what funds Europeana comes from uh, the EU. So we're centrally funded by the EU, um, but all the member states also chip in a little bit, uh, all the 28 member states. But to me, that's only... It really is fundamentally only part of a bigger story. I mean, there's an immense amount of volunteer work, which is not quantified in euros, but, you know, really adds to what we can do and how uh, how powerful we are. So, um, yes, you and me as taxpayers, but also maybe you as a volunteer Wikipedian or uh, me as a um, participant in a transcribathon, all of that also makes Europeana happen. Who can contribute to Europeana? Who should I be? What kind of skills should I possess if I have some spare time and I want to contribute to Europeana? Remind me to uh, write down your name and email address after this. 
but uh, let's see the excellent question. Um, as, as a real volunteer from outside this sector, I think uh, participating in these, in these public engagement things is really tremendously helpful. If you have a story about migration to share, there's a place on our website where you can do it. If you want to participate in transcribathons, and again, you really don't have, need to have any real skills for that. Uh, as long as you can type uh, in your own language, uh, you'll be good. If you're a professional in this environment, so perhaps you work in uh, a museum or a library and you think, ah, yeah, I want to contribute to this thing, European, and not only because European, but also because it helps you in your own personal development. There are plenty of ways to participate. Um, the first thing you need to do is become a member of our network association, and then you'll be invited to participate in you know, solving issues we all face. Like uh, 3D scanning is now becoming uh, the rigueur. Uh, what kind of standards do we need to develop for that? How do we present that on the web? Uh, so you might be a little bit techy if you want to be in there. But uh, we also, if you have some, um, some art skills, uh, we'd invite you to create uh, your own collections on the Europeana collections with the stuff you like. So I think there are plenty of ways to do it. It is an area, you know, participation of the general public is something that is difficult, but it's something that we'd like to, to develop a lot further in the coming years. We've mentioned already that Europeana celebrates its first 10th anniversary on November the 20th, this year, 2018, which also happens to be the European Year of Cultural Heritage. Can you talk a little bit about the celebrations of this anniversary for Europeana? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's a, an incredible coincidence as these two things uh, coincide. So we're preparing uh, a bit of a month of celebration, not just on the 20th. We'll probably have a, a nice cake here in the office, but I think more importantly, we want to... We want to thank our network. We want to thank all the institutions that participated, all the politicians and the policymakers who helped to make this happen. So we're having a number of events uh, around November and December where uh, we'll celebrate some of these things. But I think most importantly, it's it's we don't want to just look back. We want to say, you know, this is what worked well in the past. These are the flaws in the system, which we're, we have plenty of, believe me. Um, but also, this is how we can contribute to a Europe of, you know, in, in, in its 20s, in the, the 2020s. Uh, we're facing some big issues here about identity, about uh, the economy. Um, and we think that as a networked infrastructure of all these museums, libraries and archives facilitated by Europeana, we can do something. And I think that's where the European year comes in. Uh, it puts... Cultural heritage really, at least in policy land, on the forefront of the agenda. I'm not sure how, how much that filters through to you know, individual citizens at the moment. But that's a great opportunity, especially now there will be parliamentary elections, right, uh, in spring next year. Um, this is a fantastic opportunity to shape how the future will be, will be run. We learn from your short biography on the Europeana website that what you like to do more than anything, quote, is to design and implement new business models that will change our way of thinking about heritage as an enabler of societal and economic growth, unquote. I would like to ask you something that probably transcends the scope of Europeana, but I'd like you to answer in the light of your work for Europeana, and that is the relationship between cultural heritage and the economy, not just in sense of making profit from it, but indeed making it more appealing from the economical point of view, and certainly defeating this idea that culture is a bad investment, that money spent on culture is lost. We know from the creative industries that this is a very profitable market because it's not just about the works and the people directly involved with art and cultural heritage, but also all the professions that go around it. So since this is the thing you like to do the most, what's your idea of making cultural heritage more appealing from the economical point of view, provided that it remains intact in its meaning? So I think a couple of years back, um, and I think it, 
it started from the 1980s uh, Thatcherism thinking, uh, but even until 2015, cultural heritage, digital cultural heritage, I should say, was still seen at you know it's as either something really nice that you can do, uh, you know, if everything else was already taken care of, right, on the top of the Maslow pyramid, or perhaps as for a creative industry. Right. So the idea was that if you digitize all that stuff, you now make it available for these creatives and new companies would start up using that fuel, that data uh, to create new business. I think we're moving away from that. And I think rightfully so. Um, I think the new frame, and you see that back in policy documents like uh, the new agenda for culture, which was uh, recently released in, uh, in May, policy documents where it says, well, Really, we should look at cultural heritage and culture in general as much as a much broader effect than just in culture itself. Uh, it has an effect on tourism, right? The second biggest driver for tourism uh, comes out of the statistics is always culture. That's why the Japanese and the Americans come to Europe for culture. So, um, but it goes again much broader than that. It has an effect on our well-being. Uh, running into a very interesting app uh, the other day where cultural heritage is being used to support uh, caretakers for uh, in, in the field of dementia. So I think that's an, an unexplored field where probably the biggest you know impact can be seen. Now, obviously, you can also turn that into economics. You can express the value of all that in, in monetary terms if you want. Uh, you can say, well, you know, if, if this helps uh, dementia caretakers, then probably the, the patients have to go less to the hospital, and that's a cost-saving thing. But again, that's a very limited view on the world. So there's been a lot of studies uh, this year and, and last year that show the tremendous value that cultural heritage has way beyond uh, its own cadres. So there are 12 million people working in the cultural sector. Um, it's set to contribute to about 4.5% of GDP, but it's only the, you know, the accountable stuff. So that's what I'm most fascinated by is, again, to start developing metrics to investigate that. How does that change? If you are confronted with much more culture and be able to participate in it, how does that change your perspective on things like change? And if you are more receptive to change, how much more receptive are you to innovation, for example? So there are trickle-down effects that we need to uh, get a lot more insight in. But um, I'm now rambling a little bit. Is that still in line with your question? Or Yes, yes. Thank you very much, and I like some of the images you suggested there. Now, you have been appointed Executive Director of the Europeana Foundation this year, 2018, in the month of May. But how long have you been with Europeana before this appointment? I've been with Europeana seven years before. Yeah, so I, was, um, I started out as the Business Director and became... Uh, deputy director uh, under Joe Cousins, the previous uh, executive director. And yeah, I must say, I, I fell in love with this organization. Um, I've always liked and loved the, the aim of it. Uh, I love working with these type of people. Uh, it's really at the crossroads of tech, culture, innovation. Uh, and that's just... I don't think I'll get bored here for, for a very, very long time. Um, and I was incredibly excited when I was appointed executive director, um, for which I had to fight, by the way. It wasn't just something that fell into my lap. Um, and now being able to put my own signature on it, um, I, feel, I feel very blessed, I must say. I like to hear that you're so passionate about what you do, and it was refreshing to hear you say a couple of minutes ago that also some directors of museums with whom you interact share this love for what they do, the awareness that they are actually guardians of our common heritage. That's an immense responsibility. 
And as public, we don't always get to see these people. And we might think sometimes that museums are run like businesses, which they have to be to some extent to support themselves. But it's refreshing to hear that people at the top of those hierarchies actually have an awareness of the importance of their role and a love for what they're keeping. So thank you for sharing that. And uh, speaking of sharing, is there any special story, an anecdote, something funny or cool that was made possible by the network, by the platform, what Europeana stands for during the seven years that you've been with Europeana? Well, uh, there are many of such stories, but I think You know, I feel immensely proud of having been part of a, the release of all the European metadata. I think at the time it was about 22 million. Under a CC0, that's a public domain license, was a huge, huge affair. It was the biggest contribution of culture to the public domain at the time. And, and it was really done... We were able to do this, not because of one individual, because of a bunch of individuals, you know, who put their hearts in it, all their intelligence and talents. And um, for a couple of years, and the release of that, and I still remember I, I was lucky enough I could present it in Helsinki at a uh, uh, an Open Knowledge Foundation uh, meeting, was... Uh, was a tremendous feat. And I, I can still remember how proud I felt to be part of this organization. Thank you for sharing your Europeana stories with us. We remember that during this month you have lots of celebrations going on, so we will certainly link some useful information in the description of this episode. And thank you for being on Technoculture. So it was very nice meeting you. Some very intelligent questions. Thank you for that. Oh, can I keep this in the interview? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Talk to you soon then. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to Technoculture. Check out more episodes at technoculture-podcast.com or visit our Facebook page at Technoculture Podcast and our Twitter account, hashtag Technoculture Podcast. 